The first of the uh, five purposes that we build uh, the experience at Heritage College around, especially the college, but it's also seminary, is to learn to know God. We just saying, I've spent my life to know and I'm far from close to know all that you are. I was thinking, you know, in this room, we have faculty who've walked and known Jesus, taught the Bible for many, many years, and they are still on a pursuit to know God, to know him better through Jesus Christ. And some of you may be newer Christians, and you're on a pursuit to know God through Jesus Christ. And we will spend eternity getting to know him. The one thing we can do in time, though, that we won't be able to do in eternity is to help other people get to know him. And uh, Dima was just telling me, I think uh, Isaiah and Emma, you guys had the privilege yesterday of talking to somebody, uh, was going door to door, if I got the story right, and uh, she was ready to receive Christ. Was that right? So isn't that awesome? That's really good news. So that's our privilege to go tell people how they could possibly, through their own little life, come to know the great God of the universe. And it's a great privilege to be able to be part of telling others the good news of the gospel. So I commend all of you that are involved in serving the Lord, community, here, there, wherever it is, keep it up. We get to know him and we want to make him known. Well, if you were to ask people who've been in ministry for a long time, any kind of ministry, any kind of service, if you were to ask them, what have been some of the greatest joys for you in serving Christ? You know, one of the things that you would often hear, one of the things they would often tell you is this, one of the greatest joys in being in ministry has been developing deep relationships with other people who are with me in ministry. Like it's time spent with my teammates. It's getting to know people who also want to serve the Lord. And that sweet fellowship, that sweet friendship is one of the chief joys in serving Christ. And then if you were to ask those same people, the ones you just talked to, if you said, well, what have been some of the biggest heartaches in ministry? Those same people would tell you, well, some of the biggest heartbreaks have been conflicts with some of the people I serve the Lord with. Like relational rifts that happened with people that I was close to serving alongside of, and then things went sideways. It is a painful, painful thing to find yourself in a relational rift that rips you up with somebody that you love deeply, that you've served close to. Could be a family member, could be a colleague, could be a teammate, could be a roommate, could be a professor, could be someone in your church. But it's a painful thing when relationships get broken and hearts break too. But the damage doesn't just start with stop with me and someone else that I might be in a relational rift with. The, the damage tends to go wider. There's collateral damage when people get offside with each other. Because when relationships get poisoned, then other relationships get polarized. You found that out? Like, like when somebody's in a conflict, the people around them either take cover or they take sides. And then it just kind of exacerbates what was going on and things get even messier. It's a painful thing. Most of us here have lived long enough to know what this feels like. This is not just an abstract thing I'm talking about. Almost all of us would say, yeah, I've lived that. I've been in an experience of relational rift that has ripped me up and caused damage to me, to others, and it's spread further. In fact, some of us here today, I'm not to, I don't know of anything specific, but I'm just knowing a group our side. Some of us are here saying, I'm living that story today. Or if I'm not living it, some people I love deeply who are close to me are living that story. So the question comes up, well, what do you do? How do you keep your spiritual stability 
in the midst of relational turbulence? How do you keep your emotional equilibrium when things are not settled between you and someone else? How do you handle this? What does God want us to do? That's the topic I want to talk about today. We're in a series on Tuesdays called Thinking Biblically About, and then we're picking different topics to think biblically about. When I mapped this series out a number of months ago, I decided that on this day, we would talk about a topic that I think hits us the more we get to know each other. We've been living in community now for many months. It can start to hit us right about now, and that is, what do you do when things start to get a little difficult, a little tense, a little turmoiled with people around you? Whether it's here on campus, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your church, whether it's in a ministry. Today, I want to talk to you about thinking biblically about relational conflict. And I want to take you to a passage that over the years has been a great help to me in this area. Probably more than almost any other passage in Scripture I can think of, this passage has been a great help when it comes to dealing with relational conflict and knowing how God wants me to deal with that, handle that. It's in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 to 9. So can I invite you to take, me, take a Bible and join me there? Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 to 9. And uh, I'm going to ask you to do something very personal today, and that is to take this very personally. As I said, I'm not preaching to any one of you. I'm preaching to all of you and all of me. But I'm going to ask you, instead of just thinking about it, like, I'm so glad my roommate's here hearing this today. They really need this. I'm going to ask you to say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? Because all of us are in relational connections that when they get difficult, it can be damaging to us, to others, and to God's glory. So that's where we're headed today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at Scripture together. Father, this morning as we go through your word, I'm asking that your spirit would allow us to personally see and seize the truth and apply it, that you would help us. Lord, these are, these are tricky waters. These are difficult things for all of us. And we cry out for mercy. You are so great. We've sung about that today. And now would you condescend in your greatness? You said that you're the high and lofty one, but you dwell with those who are humble and contrite of heart. May you find those kinds of hearts here at Heritage today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. And you can see right from the beginning how much he loves the people he's writing to. Did you see that verse 1? Therefore, my brothers, or it would be brothers and sisters, therefore all the believers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. Like he's saying, you guys really mean the world to me. But then he tells them, look at verse 1 halfway through, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, stand firm. So he's exhorting them, hey, stand firm. Don't, don't, don't collapse. Don't cave. Stand firm. Now, when he says stand firm in this context, he means stand firm even when life gets messy. Even when relationships get strained. Even when there is tension and turmoil. Stand firm. And I know that's what he's saying because if you go to the flow of thought, what he talks about, the very next thing is a relational conflict. In verse 2, he's going to introduce the topic of a tension that's going on between two women that Paul considers teammates. Like, these weren't two marginal ladies that he hardly knew. He said, these are, these are two ladies that worked with me in the gospel. These are good women. But right now, we got a problem. 
So he writes to the church saying, stand firm. In the midst of a relational conflict that evidently was fairly public in their, in their community. And what Paul does in the next verses, I think, is he gives them seven ways that they can stand firm in the midst of a relationally tense time. Seven ways that they can make the situation better rather than worse. So what I want to do is I want to walk through verses 2 to 9 and show you seven things that Paul tells them. And these are the same thing that God, by his spirit, through his word, is telling you, is telling me. So are you in a relational conflict right now? Or is there some tension going around somewhere? then you need to take special note of these seven things. Do you care about people that you know and love that are in relational conflict? Then here's seven things that God's word tells them, tells you, tells me that we need to hear. So let me go with it. We'll go rather quickly, but you might want to jot them down. Here's the first one. It comes out of verse two. The first thing that Paul says to this church in the midst of trying to stand firm in a relationally tense time is this. Number one, find agreement in the Lord. So what do you do when there's tension? Between you and someone else, another brother, another sister, Paul starts off by saying, find agreement in the Lord. Look at verse 2. You'll see it. I entreat you, Odia, and I read you, Sunteki, to agree in the Lord. So Paul calls them out by name. And we know he's not doing that to humiliate them because in verse 3, he talks about these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So like these are his friends. Like he's not throwing them under the bus and saying, yeah, let's kind of out some people. They're not doing it so well. He's just saying, I got two ladies there that mean a lot to me. They're co-workers in the gospel. And I'm writing and I'm saying, women, Euodia, Sintuki, here's what I want you to hear. Agree. Agree. In fact, that's what he says to them. Did you see the word agree there? I entreat Euodia. I entreat, I entreat Sintuki to agree in the Lord. To agree. The Greek word there means to think the same thing. In fact, it's the same Greek word if you go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, thinking the same thing. So he tells these two ladies, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to agree. Now you may hear that and go, Paul, I don't think that's a very realistic piece of advice or a command. They don't agree. That's their problem. In fact, you could probably lock them in a room and say, you're not getting out of here until you agree, and they would never leave the room. Like, they just don't see eye to eye. They don't see it. So just to say, agree, how is that going to help them? It seems impossible. Well, Paul adds three little words that makes the impossible possible. Because he doesn't just say, agree. Did you look at it? Look at it closely. What does he say? Agree, what comes next? In the Lord. Those three little words change the whole tenor of things. Agree in the Lord. You see, they may not be able to agree on the issue. They may not be able to agree on a solution to the issue. But Paul says, listen, Yodia, Suntiki, agree in the Lord. See, in the Lord, we find two things that can help us agree. First of all, we find common ground. In the Lord, we can find common ground. Like when it comes to the issue, you and I may not see eye to eye on it forever. But it comes when it's in the Lord, then there's something we got common ground. When my wife Linda and I disagree on an issue, like we're stuck, right? We're, we're, she sees it one way, I see it one way. Here's something we can always agree on. We can agree that we need to please Jesus, right? We can agree that his word is above either of our perspectives. 
we can agree that what we want most is to do it his way. See, in the Lord, you find common ground with somebody you love that you're not seeing eye to eye on. You find a place where you can say, we're going to go, well, what does the Lord want? How can we find common ground in the Lord? In the Lord, we find common ground. But there's a second thing we find in the Lord. Not only common ground, but uncommon strength. We, can, we find uncommon strength to agree in the Lord. See that little phrase, in the Lord? It's also used in verse 1. Look, at the, look at back at verse 1. Stand firm thus in the Lord. You see, in the Lord we find strength to stand. And the Lord gives us strength to find agreement when we can't agree. So, let me ask you. Are you in a situation right now where you have somebody who's a good person, you know and love, but right now you just don't agree? There's an issue between you. You, you don't see eye to eye. You, you say, I don't, I don't see it that way. If you add the phrase, in the Lord, does that change things for you? Could you say, well, yeah, we don't agree on the issue, but we both agree that we want to please Jesus. We both agree that his word is higher than our viewpoint. We both agree that we need him. We both agree that we need strength. See, it's in the Lord that we find agreement when we can't seem to, when all we have is rocky ground, in the Lord we find common ground. When all we have is little strength, in the Lord we find his strength, uncommon strength. So be thinking about that. First thing what you do, you agree in the Lord when you're stuck. But that leads me to the second thing. You say, well, we've tried that, but we're still not getting, I mean, they're a Christian, I'm a Christian. We both prayed about it, but we're still not kind of any closer. Well, that leads me to the second thing. It comes out of verse 3. Get help when you get stuck. What do you do when you are having a relational rift and you've tried to agree in the Lord, but you're just not getting there? Paul would say, get help when you get stuck. Look at verse 3. He says, yes, I ask you also, true, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul reaches out to someone else in the church, must have been a trusted, godly, seasoned leader, and he goes, hey, would you help my two friends, Euodia and Suntiki? Would you help them? Would you reach in? They're stuck right now. I've called them to agree in the Lord, but that's not always easy to do. So would you get in there and help them? These are good women. You're a true comrade. We've all worked together in the gospel. So would you get in and help? Now, let me ask you a question. When you're in a relational conflict and it's stuck, do you find yourself always ready to go get help? Like most of us are kind of hesitant to do that. We're embarrassed. We're stubborn. We think, well, maybe it'll just pass. Maybe we'll just blow over. So we're reluctant sometimes to ask for help. But here's the other thing. We're reluctant to offer help. Like we got good friends that are at odds with each other, and we know what's going on, but we're thinking, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get my nose in that thing, and because then, it could, then I could get wrapped up into it. That's, you have to be wise, but there may be a time when God tells you, like Paul told his friend, would you help them? They're stuck right now. So would you intervene? In fact, in fact, the Greek word that's translated help there in verse 3, I ask you also, true comrade, help these women. If you kind of study that word and its kind of range of meaning, often it's a very forceful word. It means many, many times it's translated to seize or to apprehend. The idea is like to intervene, 
See, there is a time for godly people to step into a situation and say, hey, I know this is kind of an awkward thing for me to do, but I really love you both. And I just, I just believe the best about both of you. And is there anything that I can do to help us find common ground in the Lord? Get help when you get stuck. Are you in a situation right now where you'd say, I'm stuck on this one? Might be with your family back home. Might be with someone here on campus. It might be with someone from another arena of your life. Are you just saying, but I'm stuck? Would you be willing to get help? Would you be willing to find somebody that you trust and say, you know, we just don't seem to be able to get past this, and I want to get past this. Or is the Lord moving in your heart to say, this may be a time for you to courageously and graciously step into a relationship and say, I love you both. Is there anything I can do to help? Can I pray? So what do you do when relationships get difficult? You've, you seek to find agreement in the Lord. You get help when you get stuck. Here's the third thing. In the midst of all this, you find joy in the Lord. You find joy in the Lord. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, I'll be honest with you. For many, many years, I read that verse and I just treated it like Paul has started a new subject, right? Like he was talking, whatever he was talking about, about those two women. Now he turns the page and says, hey, I got something else to say. It's unrelated to what I just said. I want to say to all of you, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I'll say rejoice. And I do think that verse four is a command that applies in any situation. It's a broad command. But I think it has special application in this context. In the midst of the mess of life and ministry, when there's tension, I think Paul is saying, right then, right then, rejoice in the Lord. In fact, I think that there is a theme of peacemaking that flows from verse 2 all the way down to verse 9. That Paul is really talking about one subject here. Oh, there's applications elsewhere, but it's one subject. Because look at it. Verse 2, he starts off by talking about two women who are not at peace, right? And then if you slide down to verse 9, he ends up by saying, do these things. Look at verse 9 at the end. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I think throughout this whole chapter, Paul said, let me help you find a way to make peace when life gets a little bit tenuous and turmoiled. So let's read verse 4 in the context of making peace when there's tension. He says to them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'm going to say it, rejoice. Now, let me ask you a simple question. What's your emotional state when you're in a conflict with somebody? Like, are you just like feeling real happy? Probably not so much, right? In fact, very few things sap our energy and our joy more than conflict. Like, you can deal with illness. You got a crummy cold. It's no fun. But you can kind of motor through it. But when you're at odds with somebody that you love, someone important in your life, it can just devastate you. And life can seem dark. And so in the midst of that, I think Paul writes to these believers and says, hey, remember this, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice. And again, he uses those three little words, in the Lord. Because otherwise, it would be hard to say rejoice. Like, he's not just saying be happy. Be happy that there's a problem right now. He's not saying that, right? He's saying, in the midst of the problem right now, rejoice in the Lord. Like, in the midst of this, don't lose your joy 
in the Lord. Like you've lost your joy in this relationship right now. I get that. But don't lose your joy in the Lord. You say, well, what am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord about when I'm in the middle of a conflict that's really messing with me? There's a book called The Peacemaker by a guy named Ken Sandy. And Ken Sandy highlights three things that you can always rejoice in the Lord about, even in the middle of a time when you're trying to make peace. He says you can rejoice in the Lord in your salvation. Like, bless the Lord that he saved me. Like, I am his. Secondly, he says you can rejoice in the Lord in the resources he gives you right now, his word and his spirit. Thank you, Lord. I rejoice that in the midst of this, I don't know what to do, but you've not left me on my own. You've given me your word. You've given me your spirit. And then he says, and you can rejoice in the Lord that he is sovereign. Lord, somehow in the midst of all of this, you are working all things for the good of those who love you to bring me into greater conformity to the likeness of Christ. He says, rejoice in the Lord. So find agreement in the Lord. Get help when you get stuck. And then in the midst of it, even before it's solved, rejoice in the Lord. And if you do that, that sets you up for the next thing that comes. The fourth thing, which we find in verse five, I'd put it this way. Be known for being reasonable. In the midst of this, as you're rejoicing in the Lord, be known for being reasonable. Look at verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If you have the NIV, I think it says, let your gentleness be known. The word there has the idea of somebody who is considerate, somebody who is accommodating. Now, why do you think Paul adds that one? Rejoice in the Lord. Why does he say, let everybody know that you're reasonable? Because sometimes when conflicts happen, we get unreasonable, right? Like tensions happen, things get kind of you know, disagreeable, and we become disagreeable, and we get abrupt, and we get abrasive. And Paul said, listen, listen, let me remind you of something. You need to have a reputation for being a reasonable person, a gentle person, right in the midst of it. You don't escalate this. So what does that look like? What do you think it looks like to be reasonable in the midst of a tension? Let me give you some things that would let, you, let people know you're reasonable. Here's one. That you would that you would have empathy for the other person in the midst of your own pain. That's a reasonable person to say, you know what, this is hurting me, but I bet it's hurting them too. I bet you they're losing sleep like I'm losing sleep. That you would have empathy. A reasonable per- person would also assume the best about the other person. Like instead of thinking all the dark thoughts about them, it would assume the best. Like I bet you they're at times really wanting this to go better than it is. Right now, man, I'm not liking them a lot, but I'm going to assume the best. Here's another thing. You'd be reasonable. If you were willing to acknowledge the good points of their viewpoint, because sometimes when we're in a disagreement with someone, it's like everything they think is bad. But a reasonable person would say, well, I don't agree with everything you're saying, but I have to admit this is right. This is good. Yep, You got a good point there. That's a reasonable thing. Here's another one. A reasonable person will flex, will accommodate where they can without compromise. Can't compromise on the Bible, but if it's just your vantage point, if it's just your preferences versus theirs, a reasonable person will say, you know, I don't have to get my way on this thing. Here's another thing a reasonable person will do. A reasonable person will speak to the other person in a gracious way and catch this and speak about the other person in a gracious way. 
Like when you're talking to somebody else, you don't throw them under the bus. You don't slander them. See, Paul is saying, I want you in the midst of all this thing to be rejoicing in the Lord and be known for being reasonable. You say, well, how could I be reasonable when I'm feeling just torqued and I'm feeling angry and I'm still bubbling up? Well, Paul, I think, adds a little phrase in verse 5 that will help calm us down and make us more reasonable. Look at verse 5 again. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Look what he adds next. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. What does that mean? could be the Lord is near to coming back, but it could mean the Lord is near. He's here. And don't you think you'd be a lot more reasonable with somebody if you knew that Jesus was standing right next to you as you were about to engage in this conversation? Like, if you remember Jesus is here, he's near, it's going to make you a different kind of person. Paul says, be known for being reasonable. And you say, okay, well, I want to do that. But man, I tell you what, sometimes I just get anxious in the midst of this. I just start feeling afraid. I start thinking of worst case scenarios and it just, it starts, I start to panic. I get anxiety. Well, that leads me to the thing number five. Comes out of verses six and seven. Let anxiety trigger prayer. Again, we tend to take verses 6 and 7 just by themselves, and they work just by themselves. But think of them in this context. Relational conflict. Euodia and Syntyche are having troubles. It's affecting the whole church family. You're starting to feel anxious. What's going to happen? And then Paul says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, including this conflict. But in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what he's saying is right in the midst of this, and you start to feel anxious, here's what you do. Every time you feel anxious, let that trigger you to pray. Lord, I'm feeling anxious right now about this thing again. Okay, I bring it to you again. I know I've told you this already 50 times today. Here's 51. 15 minutes later, I'm feeling anxious again. Let it trigger prayer. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, substitute prayer for anxiety. And he says, did you notice he says, and as you pray, also be thankful. Sometimes when we're anxious, we forget all the good things that God is still doing. All we can see is the bad things that aren't fixed. And he says, bring your requests to God, supplications, requests, but remember to be thankful. You keep thanking him. Lord, thank you that you're here. I right now am really anxious about this, but I thank you that you hear me. I thank you that you can help this. And then he says, if you do that, look what God will do. Verse seven, and the peace of God. I'm trying to make peace with this person, and in the midst of it, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Like in the midst of it, God will speak peace in your soul, calm you down. You say, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that, but I still got another problem. I still find that my mind goes back to the tension And I just kind of relive it over and over, and I rehearse it, and I review it, and I replay it, and it just kind of consumes me. Well, then Paul goes to the next thing, the sixth thing, comes out in verse 8. I'd put it this way. Focus your mind on the right things. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
You see, when we're in a conflict with someone, we can think about all the dark things, right? We can think of all the reasons, and we start thinking of uh, their motives, and we start thinking of what they're going to do next, and we start thinking, and Paul says, listen, listen, corral your mind and think on these things. Think on what's true, not what's speculative. Think on what's right, not what's wrong. Think on what's lovely, not what's unbrutal. So he says, think on these. Let your mind be focused. Do you know that God says that you are responsible for your thinking? This whole series we're doing is on thinking biblically. God says that your thinking is not just at the whims of whatever thoughts come bombarding your mind. You are able to frisk them. You are able to evaluate them and say, like these thoughts that are coming in, Lord, these are not your thoughts. So I say, Lord, I don't want those. Would you help me by your spirit to change the channel and go back to thinking on what's true and right and lovely? One of the ways you can do that, my friends, is this. Memorize a few key verses. And when your mind starts going to all the dark things, just say, Lord, I can't, I don't want to go there. And bring it back and review some verses that remind you of what's true and right and lovely. You say, okay, I'm going to try all this, but this is new for me. This is not how I was raised. This is not how my family of origin did conflict. This is not my innate default response to conflict. I don't naturally do this. Well, that leads me to the seventh thing, which comes out of verse 9. I put it this way. Pattern yourself after a godly person. Pattern yourself after a godly person. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says to the believers, hey, listen, here's what you can do in the midst of all this. Let me be a bit of an example for you. What you saw in me, how you saw me handle things, how you saw me handle tension, how you saw me handle disagreements. Well, practice those things and the God of peace will be with you. He will help you. So you find yourself patterned after another godly believer. Who do you know that's a great model of handling tension well? Learn from them. I grew up in a family where actually my dad was excellent at this. He was a pastor for many years. And I remember one time I was a young adult and I was doing an internship at our church. And I, I may have told some of you this story. I was working in the area of music and, uh, our church, this is a number of years ago, our church just got a new organ, which was kind of the rage back then. It was a digital organ. And everyone was like, whoa, you got a digital organ. That is amazing. And it was. We were so excited about this. Dr. Thompson will remember these years. We went from just like the little home organ to like a church organ. And, uh, and just as we, you know, we spent all this time researching all the brands and we got the money and we got the organ and then the organist quit. Like soon as we got the organ, the organist goes, I'm done. I'm out. And I'm going, how could you quit? We just got you a new organ. So my dad, who knew this lady, she was a, a dear lady, a faithful servant. My dad said to me, Rick, we need to go pay her a visit. So we, said, we called her husband, and we, we said up time, we went to their house. And I was just shaking. I'm thinking, this is going to be a train wreck. We got this new organ, and now we're going to have no organist. And everyone's going to go, why do we spend all the money on the organ if we don't got an organ? And I was thinking all the dark things that were going to happen. So we sit down. And my dad begins to talk to Doris. And it was amazing to me. He listened to her. Doris, we love you. You don't have to be our organist. We just love you. But why don't you want to be the organist anymore? And it came out little by little. She thought she wasn't good enough. She thought you got a new organ. 
So you're going to need a better organist. And I'm not, people are going to go, it still sounds like about as good as the old organ. You know, and she thought everyone would look at her and go, you're not as new and spanking and awesome as the organ is. So to kind of preempt that, she just quits. So there will be no criticism of her. My dad hears all that. And he just says, Doris, we're not expecting you to do anything other than what you've always done. To play the organ, to help us sing our praises to the Lord. And by the end of the night, there's hugs all around, and Doris is back on the organ, and I was just watching all this, and as we walk out the door, we get in the car, and I go, Dad, that was amazing. And uh, you know, he, I said, does this get easier over the years to do this? And he said this to me. He says, Rick, it doesn't get easier, but you get better at it. See, he, like Paul, had learned some things. He had learned to treat people with empathy to listen to them, to care about them, to flex what he could. And I was able to pattern myself to go, okay, that's what I need to do more of. Who do you know that could be that kind of a pattern for you? So let me review them all one more time. What do you do when you find yourself in a conflict? Well, you seek to say, well, let's see if there's some agreement we can find in the Lord. And then let's get help when we get stuck. And even before it's all fixed, let's seek to find our joy in the Lord. Find joy in the Lord. And then, as we're doing that, let's seek to be known as reasonable people, gentle people, in the midst of all that. And when we start to feel anxious about it all, let anxiety trigger prayer. Let's pray about it. Let's bring it to the Lord. And let's focus our minds on the right things so that we don't kind of think all the wrong things. And let's make sure we find somebody who is the pattern of peacemaking. By the way, you know the ultimate pattern of peacemaking is the Lord Jesus, right? So if you want a pattern, there's no better pattern. He's the God who made peace. He's the God who came when you had a rift with God that nobody could fix. Jesus fixed it. And if you'll spend your life saying, Lord, you fixed the rift that you and I had, would you, would you teach me? I've trusted in you as my Savior. Now I'm trusting in you to guide me and grow me up to be more like you. So that when I'm in conflict, I'll handle it in a way that would please you. See, even the gospel that you've received can be the gospel that empowers you to live the way of Jesus. So as we close here this morning, I started by saying I'd like you to take this personally. So here's my question for you. Is there somebody that you know right now that you need to apply all of this to that situation? Would the Lord be saying, I want you to do that? And do you, t- do you need to take the first step? Do you need to take that first step and say, I- I'm not going to let it stay broken. I'm going to do it. So far as it depends upon me, I'm going to be at peace. And if there's a rift, it won't be from my side. I will at least have tried. I want to play you a song today that uh, has, hits my heart every time I hear it because it's a guy that says, Lord, I want to be that peacemaker. And listen to it, and as you do, just be in a spirit of prayer and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me today? say I'm sorry, but I don't know how, but I'm sorry, I'm so sorry now. I said some words to you I wish I'd never said. I know words can kill, cause something's dead. 
And now my heart is like a catacomb And I'm praying we can find a way to raise these bones again Say I'm sorry, but it's not enough to close the wounds I opened up. So now I've got this sorrow, and you've got that hurt, and we can't go back to who we were. Oh, but could that mean I'm someone new? Maybe I can love you better than. Tell you everything was beautiful and pure But there was poison in the well from years before And now I'm cleaning up this wreckage on the shore And I don't want to fight with you no more So I want to say I'm sorry that I drew the line I built the wall fault is mine And maybe now the only way to find some peace Is just to give it time And to trust in grace So this is my communion hymn I want to sit beside you at the feast, my friend with the rest of the day and would you just take a moment to pray and talk to the Lord and just say Lord do you have something you want to say to me personally and then just keep your heart in that tender place be willing to take the steps that he asks you to take let's just pray quietly and then I'll close this Heavenly Father this morning um, we're talking to you about things that are very close to our hearts and sometimes, like uh, the song we just heard, we want to say we're sorry, but we don't know how. And we don't know how to close wounds that we've opened up. And we don't know what to do sometimes with the wounds that others have opened up in us. So we bring it all to you. Jesus, you died for all these wounds. You died. You carried our sorrows. You're acquainted with our, our griefs. You have uh, carried our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. Lord, you've You've paid the price for all of our sins. And now we're asking you for your life and your grace and your peace so that we could respond to each other in a way that pleases you, that honors you, and that brings health and healing. Lord, I, I would pray that this community of believers here would be a place where we learn how to love well. Even when that's not easy, help us to love well. So, Lord, give grace where grace is needed to each of our lives, to each of our scenarios. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased. You would be honored as you strengthen us to walk in the way of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.